In respect and honor of God's word, would you rise, please, as we read, starting with Judges 10, 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and also from the Amorites, the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Monites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go forth and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only, please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and, became, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin this uh, begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gildite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, will be your head. 
And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Please be seated. Please join me in prayer. Father, once again, uh, we look to you, uh, remembering that not only do we depend upon you to speak to us as you have in your word, but we also need you to help us to hear. And Lord, we know we need your word. We know that we need whatever you want to say to us to become just deeply imprinted upon our hearts. And so we ask for that now, that um, you would help me as I speak, that you would help us as we hear, that together we might be a people who truly hear you and are made more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. So as Scott said, we're going to be actually looking through the larger passage that's printed in your bulletin, so I invite you to keep that open. And I want to just say from the outset, I think there's a question that this passage poses to us about our relationship with God. Do you have, do I have a relationship with God that is personal? Or do you have a relationship with God that is transactional? Did you know what I mean by that distinction? Um, so let's say you're going to Mariano's and you're getting some groceries and you're checking out for some reason you decide to go into the place where there's actually a human being rather than a computer and you start kind of bringing the groceries through and she'll ask you something like, hey, how, how are you doing or something like that and you'll say, fine. There is not really a deep, meaningful connection that's going on right now, right? This is just politeness. Your goal is to bring your groceries out to the car. Her goal is to make sure you pay before that happens. Once you leave, you will probably not think of that checkout person again. The trade has taken place. The relationship is over. That is, unless you're my mother-in-law, because my mother-in-law, when she comes to the grocery line and she starts talking to the person, the person asks, hey, how are you? She will then see this as an opportunity to start talking about how she's had a lovely time with her grandchildren, how these different things are happening. And she'll start asking them her a question, like, do you have any grandchildren? And, and, you know, people will be fleeing that line, going to every other line. And, and suddenly they will know each other by name. They will have each other on the Christmas card list. She has just moved this from a transactional relationship to a personal one, right? The transaction is just about the trade, but the personal relationship is about each other. Transactional is safe, it's closed, it's limited, but a personal relationship is, is open and alive. And the transactional relationship is just about the trade, but the personal relationship, when it is best, is about love. Sometimes, sadly, uh, what we think should be, and rightly think should be, a personal relationship, we end up discovering is much more transactional than we had hoped. Have you ever had the experience where you are relating to someone, maybe you're thinking, hey, new friendship, we're starting to kind of connect with each other, and then you start realizing at some point that they're really only interested in you for what you can do for them. Maybe, maybe they, they bring you to dinner, and, and, and then they say, hey, I have this opportunity with Amway that I'd like to share with you, and you realize, oh, it's that kind of thing. Or sadly, sometimes I think some kids grow up thinking rather than feeling the personal connection, they, they feel like there's something transactional even about the relationship with their parents, that 
They will make their parents happy as long as they keep on succeeding, as long as they get their A's, as long as they do good things, parents will like them, but if not, they won't. It, it feels like a transaction, and it, it's tragic when that's the case. Maybe some of you have something like that in your background. So this dynamic, this, this distinction is something I think that's important when we understand the way that we relate to God, because one of the most remarkable, extraordinary, and yet clear truths of Scripture is that the God of the universe desires to have a deeply personal relationship with us. He's not interested in some sort of trade, some sort of quid pro quo. There's nothing that we can give him that he doesn't already have. What he wants for us is to know his love, to experience a relationship with him like a father and a child relationship where, where he shows his kindness to us, where he cares for us, and where we experience it and rest in it and respond in worship. He desires a personal relationship with us. And yet the tragic truth that we see throughout Scripture is that humanity, as a general rule, seems to have something deep within them that is resistant, that, that finds this idea of relating to God in this way threatening. And so we oftentimes seek to keep God at arm's length. We try to keep it transactional, where we do what we need to do so that he can be good to us, and, and, and that's it. It's a quid pro quo. I think Jesus, when he is telling his famous story of the prodigal son, actually starts kind of pointing in that direction. If you know the story, you might remember. It's a story of a father with two sons, but the youngest son has just sinned terribly, has hurt his father deeply. But then at some point, he returns back to his father in repentance, and his father welcomes him with open arms, has a party for him, and the older brother is furious. Because the older brother hasn't done all of these bad things. The older brother's been good the whole time. And from his perspective, he's been good. So good things should happen to him. His brother's been bad. So bad things should happen to him. He does not have the capacity, it seems, to see something different. To see a personal relationship of a father and his sons. All he can understand is the trade, is the transaction. And so while his brother rejoices... He is miserable. And the question that as Jesus tells the parable is meant to be provoked in its hearers, that we're meant to ask ourselves is, which one am I? When I relate to God, is it a personal relationship? Or when I relate to God, do I see it as something where, where his response to me is entirely dependent on what I do for him? where it really is just a trade? That's the question I would suggest that we're also supposed to be asking as we come to our passage this morning. If you have been with us as we've been studying Judges, you might recognize already that what we've seen in the people of Israel is a very stubborn intent to maintain only a transactional relationship with the Lord God. The Lord God has called them to himself. He has rescued them. He's saying, I will be your God. You will be my people. He seeks this personal, loving relationship. But here's what Israel does. Whenever things go poorly, that's when they call to God and say, God, we need your help. And God, because he loves his people, will send judge after judge after judge to rescue them, to save them, to bring them to a place of rest. 
and they enjoy rest, and this is great, and they're like, okay, thanks, God. We're good from here. And they turn their back on God for a while because the transaction is over. But then things go bad again. So they realize, oh, let's go back to God. They ask God for help. God shows kindness to them again. And everything just keeps on repeating. That's the pattern we've seen in Judges. And that's the pattern it looks like we're about to see here. Perhaps you notice it. Probably you can almost like repeat it if you've been with us week after week. It started the same way. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And once again, as a result, what happens? Now it's the Ammonites who are overwhelming them, making them miserable. For 18 years, they are crushed and oppressed. They are miserable. So what do they do? You know what we should do? We should call out to God. But this time, it's something different. Verse 13. After God first, in the previous verses, reminds them of how he has loved them faithfully, how he has cared for them whenever they call out to him, he says in verse 13, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you. God is saying, I am not willing to have that kind of relationship with you. I know where this is going. And I want a different relationship, one that is not just based on the transaction. See if the gods that you are looking to, if they can save you. And so it raises the question, what is going to happen? If Israel is so intent on having this transactional relationship and God is saying, I will not have that kind of relationship with you, what is God going to do? Is God done with his people? And it is this question that leads us to the story of Jephthah, the next of the judges in this book. Jephthah, we are told at the very beginning of chapter 11, the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. And to understand how he gets this title, it then gives us a bit of his backstory. We discover that Jephthah has a really difficult childhood. He, on one hand, is the son of a powerful man, the, the head of the clan of Gilead, but he is also the child of a prostitute. And so though he grows up in this wealthy household, he grows up, grows up there without his mother, with a father who is embarrassed by him, with brothers or half-brothers who see him as a mistake, with uncles who believe he doesn't belong. Imagine, just imagine that. Imagine growing up never seeing in someone else's eyes the look of love. Imagine as a child only feeling shame for what you are and never experiencing in any way grace. You would long for you would long for a sense of respect. You would long to be seen. And at a certain point, depending on how you respond to it, you might just come to conclude, if you want anything in life, you are going to have to make it for yourself. You are going to have to fight for it. You might conclude, and I think this is what Jephthah came to conclude, that the only real relationships that exist in the world are transactional. The only way to make sure you get the respect and the things you need is to earn it, and to fight for it. And so after Jephthah has grown up and his brothers have grown up, we see that they drive him out 
saying, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And so Jephthah flees. He goes far off to the land of Tob. But he's not helpless. His whole upbringing, he has learned how to survive, and he's discovered that he has certain skills. He has a kind of charisma, a way with words, a way to get people to follow him. And so while he's in this wilderness, he, he finds others who are like him, social misfits, outcasts who've been rejected by their clans, and he gathers them around himself, and, and they become a group. They become a, a, a gang of soldiers of fortune. Think of it as kind of like an ancient mafia, where they're earning money either from protecting some cities or plundering others. But either way, Jephthah has become one who is known as a mighty warrior. So meanwhile, while all this has taken place, the, the clan of Gilead, the family from which Jephthah was cast out, is having harder and harder time as they are under the Ammonite oppression. And they are looking everywhere to try to figure out how to solve this. They've cried out to God. He hasn't seemed to do anything. They even seek to put away their idols and serve the Lord, but they're getting no response. So they're like, okay, who else can save us? And so we back up a few verses. We see in 10 verse 18, it says, The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? And so you can imagine all of these wealthy brothers from Gilead having this brainstorming session saying, Who is the guy? Who can do this? And, and at a certain point, they go, Oh, crud. It's got to be Jephthah. And so at some point, they send a couple of the brothers. You remember the brothers who sent Jephthah out with hatred to Jephthah. And if we maybe kind of update it and kind of like think of it like maybe a modern way, you can imagine. So you've got these two wealthy-looking men, you know, fine-cut suits, Italian leather shoes, walking up to the hideout that's Jephthah's. And, and there they see these two grizzled men in camouflage with tattoos, and, and they look at these two guys, and they find out who they are, and they, in a walkie-talkie, say, hey, boss, what are we supposed to do with these guys? And eventually they bring them in, and they, they walk into the hideout, and they come to this room where they see this massive desk, and behind desk there's Jephthah with his feet propped up and, you know, kind of finger tented together. And he says, well, what do I owe this distinct pleasure to? And, and these two Gileadite men seek to kind of maybe bluster their way and say, we've got, we've got good news for you, Jephthah. We would like you to lead us to fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah who has recognized that the only way to get what he wants is to take it, sees the opportunity to get what he longs for. And so as this request is out there, he just kind of lets it hang for a little while. He kind of raises his eyebrow. And then he just quietly says, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house, he says in verse 7. Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the brothers know. They know what Jephthah is doing. They know that he is saying, you need to give me something better, because otherwise I have no interest in doing this. And they're prepared for this. And so essentially they say, if you, if you lead us, we will let you become the head of our clan. You will be brought back and be given the position of power and authority. 
and Jephthah has been seeking this. And so in essence, he says, deal. And he makes sure that what is said is, 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 is essentially put in writing, not literally by writing, but by putting things before the Lord. Notice how it speaks about being said before the Lord. So verse 11, Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And it's a small detail, but one worth noticing because, because we see here, Jephthah does know who the Lord Yahweh is. He believes in him. But notice here that this judge does not speak to the Lord asking for help. He does not ask the Lord for information or, or, or listen. No, the way he sees the Lord right now is the enforcer, the one who will be the witness to make sure this covenant is held. He sees this as well, nothing more than a transaction of the Lord. But now he is on board. Now he is the one who's going to lead the Gileadites, and so he springs into action. And what does he do next? Well, he now seeks to negotiate with the king of Ammon, because negotiating is how Jephthah rolls. And so, if you were to continue in looking at our bullets, and you see beginning at verse 12, you have this long extended conversation between Jephthah with his messengers and the king of Ammon. And essentially, he's reminding the king of Ammon of, look, here's the story of how we have this land. But the Lord God gave this land to us. We didn't take everything. We only gave, we took the land that God gave to us. This is ours. That's, that's kind of the core of the back and forth. But it's important to understand that when Jephthah is saying that he, he is not a fool, he doesn't think that the king of Ammon is suddenly going to go, oh, good point. Jephthah, you have it. My bad. No, he, he knows that that is not what the king of Ammon is going to be doing. That's not the audience he's actually saying all of this to. He is trying to persuade someone else, and we see the goal of what he's trying to do in verse 27 of chapter 11. Where he says, I have not sinned against you, and you do, need, you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. You see, this whole time, he sees this essentially as a courtroom where he and the king are going back and forth. And meanwhile, the Lord God is in the background, the judge, and he's watching. This whole time, he's trying to make the case so that it is absolutely clear to the Lord God that God must enforce, he must bring justice. The Lord God will judge between us. I'm looking to him for a final answer. Which on one hand is praiseworthy, isn't it? There is a kind of faith that Jephthah has here where he is trying to say, I, I make my case before God and trust that he is the one who will make things right. And yet again, there's something missing. Not once does he ask for help. Not once does he seek to know God's will. He sees the Lord just as this judge that he can rely on to do something. The relationship is transactional. And so it brings to us the same question that we've been asking before. What is God going to do? with a people that he loves, but a people who keep relating to him in only a transactional way. And, and to our surprise, if you see two verses later, you see grace. It says in verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord 
was upon Jephthah. You, you see that? Yahweh's spirit, this power of God, even though Jephthah has not even, has not even pled with God, even though he has just shown this small bit of faith, God, in his kindness, decides to act graciously and give his spirit to bring about victory. And this is actually something that I think was beginning to be hinted at at 10 verse 16. After we, we hear God saying that I am not going to save you, subsequently, what does he say? It says that, that he became impatient over the misery of Israel. In other words, on one hand, God refuses to relate to his people in just a transactional way, and yet God also refuses to give up on them because he loves them. And so here we see, even despite the flaw way that Jephthah is relating to God, God seeking to show grace to Jephthah, pouring his spirit upon him to bring victory. And here is the moment, if Jephthah could only have just stepped back for a moment, because he is now given the power of the spirit, he is able to go from town to town, gathering an army, he has to know God is already at work in me. Look at what he is doing. If he could only have just noticed and realized, I don't deserve this. This is love. This is grace. Everything would have been different for him. But that is not how Jephthah is able to operate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Later in chapter 12, he is, is going to talk about this whole story about saying, I took my life into my own hand. And that is Jephthah's story. For him, he takes his life into his own hand. And so he needs to be absolutely sure that God is going to be on his side. And so he needs, from his perspective, to give God a deal that God cannot possibly refuse. And so even though he's kind of appeared before the judge, now he wants to give this judge I suppose you could say a kind of bribe. And for the first time, we see Jephthah speaking to God, but notice what he says. Jephthah, verse 30, made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Here it is. This is a trade. This is explicitly a trade. If you do this for me, I will do this for you. And even though it's translated here, whatever comes out to meet me, it could just as easily be translated, whoever comes out to meet me. And it's not clear whether Jephthah cares, whether it's one of his slaves or if it's an animal. He knows if he wants God to do something big, he needs to do something big for God. This is what a transactional understanding has pushed him to. He needs to give whatever he needs to give, no matter how painful it is, to make sure he gets what he wants from this God. And as horrifying as it is, horrifying if you know where this is going, does it surprise us? This is all he has ever known. If all you've ever known from human relationships is that the only way you can get them to be good to you is if you're good to them, is it any surprise that's how we use God? I suppose we're also supposed to ask ourselves, is this the way that we sometimes are? Can we really say we're that different? 
Do you, do you know what it's like at times to just feel like that you need to do certain things, that you need to obey God, that you need to maybe pray more, if you do your devotions right, or if you're giving more money or something like that, you need to do these things if you want to make sure that God is, is on your side, if he's for you. Do you know what it is to sometimes be leaning towards this transactional relationship with God where it feels safer because that means we get to take our lives into our own hands. But the tragedy here is this is not, this is not, not, not what God wanted. God did not want a transaction with Jephthah. God certainly did not want this transaction from Jephthah. What, what, what God wanted from him, what God wants from his people is them, is for them to be knowing his love. He wants us to experience his care like a father cares for his children, to experience his kindness, to trust in his protection and his provision, and yes, also to trust in his instruction because he knows what is best for us. He desires for his people to place themselves in his hands because that is what they need most. But that is, is just simply not what Jephthah is prepared to do. He has felt the need to make things absolutely sure, to make sure God is on his side. And God is on his side, yet not for the reasons he thinks. And so what happens after the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and what happens after this vow is it says, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand. And we see 20 cities being destroyed, Ammonites being crushed, brought low. The threat is over. Israel is rescued. And what we are meant to see here is even despite everything, God continues to show his kindness. And there is one person, one person in this entire story who seems to actually get this. When Jephthah returns, we're told in verse 34, behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. We're supposed to remember another scene of tambourine and dancing, which is way back in Exodus 15, where Miriam and a bunch, a bunch of other women with tambourine and dances sing celebration because they've seen God do something amazing. They've seen his love for them, and they cannot help but sing and dance and rejoice in joy because they have experienced the grace of God. And that's what the daughter is doing. She recognizes, look at what God has done, Jephthah. Dad, do you see how much God has loved us? Let's dance and let's sing. And in my mind's eye, I imagine what could have happened if Jephthah had recognized earlier. Can you imagine instead when Jephthah coming here, taking up the daughter in his arms and dancing with her, rejoicing and knowing that God has loved them and done this. But that is not where the story goes. Because that is not the relationship that Jephthah is willing to have with God. It's a transaction. It's a trade. And the trade has to be finished. And so rather than when he sees his daughter coming out, him rejoicing with her, he tears his robes in utter despair because she is the first one who has come out to meet him. And so with his, his locked-in vision of how he's supposed to relate to God, it becomes, in his mind, absolutely clear that there's only one thing he can do. He has to sacrifice. 
Christ, his name. And so two months later, his daughter sacrificed. And what could have been this, this glorious story of God's redemption ends on this dark, tragic note. On one hand, Jephthah has gotten everything he is seeking. He's gotten respect, he's gotten power, he's gotten victory, and yet he ends his life in grief and childless. On one hand, Israel is getting what they're seeking. They have been rescued from the Ammonites, and yet when we get to the very end of the story, there's one thing that is omitted. Every other ju uh, judge is completed by saying, and, the Lord, and Israel and the land enjoyed rest for however many years, but there is no rest that's being described here. And what we're supposed to understand is that it's not just enough to get the respect. It's not just enough to get a temporary reprieve from the enemies. If you want joy, if you want rest, it is only found when you move from some sort of twisted understanding of a relationship with God to one where you experience his love, his goodness, his, his personal relationship with you. That is where rest is to be found. See, it's important for us to understand that this story is not saying that Jephthah and Israel were somehow asking too much of God by saying, could you please save us again? They were asking for way too little. They wanted trinkets. They wanted small things. And God wanted to give them everything. There's this moment, getting back to the prodigal son story. For me, one of the most poignant lines in the whole story is when the father comes out to meet with the older brother, the one who only sees the transaction and so is furious. The father says to him gently, kindly, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. Do you not understand all that I have is yours, which is an extraordinary thing when Jesus is saying it, because when he's speaking to the Pharisees, they are, in the story, the older brother, and Jesus is, is saying from the Father's perspective, all that I have is yours. And, and Jesus isn't just saying it, Jesus is it. Because Jesus is the word of God, the perfect expression of God. And when Jesus comes to this world and he's coming to these people, God is saying to them, do you not see I give you everything? I'm going to give you my son. I'm going to have him lay down his life for you. I am giving you everything so that you might have everything. And the tragedy in that story is we see the Pharisees just not being able to get it. They could not move away from some sort of vision where it is what they do that makes God do good things for them. And the question, once again, I think we are meant to ask ourselves is, are we the same way? Are we confused? To what extent do you and I have this tendency, this inclination to think of our relationship with God transactionally? 
to think that, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I can, being obedient the way that I can. And, and if God, if, if, we, if we're doing a good job, we'll be surprised sometimes when bad things happen to us. It's like, God, this isn't the deal. I'm going to be faithful to you so you can be kind to me. You can protect me from things like cancer, divorce, bad things. And then we're surprised when that doesn't happen. Or maybe we're, we're just feeling so, so much of a failure that it is impossible for us to imagine that God could be smiling upon us. If, if he's going to do nice things for us, he's going to be doing it with a sigh and grudgingly because that's how we think of our relationship with God. Do you, do you not see that that is not the relationship that God wants from you? God doesn't want a trade from you. God wants you. Can you just think about that for a moment? The creator of the universe wants you. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to experience everything. He has given his son for you because he wants you to experience all of the goodness he has for you. He says, all that I have is yours. Entrust yourself to me. This morning, we have an opportunity to do what Jephthah never did. We have the opportunity in, in our own hearts to turn to God and, and, and ask him for help and, and turn to him in a way where we acknowledge our need of him and seek instead of some sort of transaction to draw nearer to him personally. I'm going to invite us to just take a minute or two in the quiet of our hearts to confess our sins before God. And then we will use the, the written confession that's printed in our bulletins um, after that. So let's take a moment in silence first.